Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In a fast-changing digital media environment, many magazines still attract readers. Native-led magazines offer in-depth looks at fashion, art, business, and other topics with long-form storytelling and rich artistic layouts on glossy pages. We'll talk with publishers and editors of three Native magazines about what sets them apart from other media outlets. We'll be back right after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Indigenous culture and traditions are naturally therapeutic. That's the message at the National Tribal Health Conference in Anchorage, Alaska this week. Not one tribe has the answers and the secrets to healing. Julie Smith Yulanimi teaches at the University of North Dakota's Indigenous Health Department. She believes sharing traditional knowledge can help bring about a collective healing to address the intergenerational trauma that has affected several generations of Native Americans. Interest in her session was so high, people had to sit on the floor. Others streamed out into the hallway. Raquel Britton from the Round Valley Indian Tribe Youth Council in California came in search of answers. She says intergenerational trauma is something families do not like to talk about. I feel like my family went through historical trauma that we're finally just breaking the cycle that my mother went through it with her mother. Britton says her mother has just now started to talk with her children about the family's history of trauma and wants to know what she can do to heal her own struggles and help others. Smith Yulanimi says she turns to trusted elders for advice. A source of wisdom can be surprisingly close at hand, as it was when she visited an elder battling cancer. She found the woman in her hospital bed doing beadwork and has never forgotten her words. When you're in pain or if you're sick, help create joy in somebody else. So she sat and beaded for hours and hours and hours and hours and brought me joy. She shared what brought her joy at the conference as she passed around an elaborate beaded collar the elder gifted her. She says the woman survived cancer and is still alive today. Native American and Alaska Native media professionals are celebrating 50 years of broadcasting in Indian country. Tribal radio and television stations gathered in Phoenix, Arizona Wednesday for a Native broadcast summit. Loris Taylor is president and CEO of Native Public Media. Radio and television are such powerful mediums, and I see them as almost akin to uh, a drum in the plaza where we're beating that drum right. It's, it's also this invisible through line that is tethered to our language, our cultural practices, our identity. They speak to the agency we have to tell our own stories. Tribal media is an important part of Native communities across the country for news, entertainment, and emergency messaging. George Strong is the general manager of KBFT Radio in Netlake, Minnesota. We get to tell the story from our perspective. It's something that uh, allows us to, to share our knowledge, our uh, culture, our language. And it, it's, I look at it more of a, um, a bridge building 
uh, communicative, you know, to kind of, I guess, create a, a bridge between our local communities. There are more than 60 tribal radio stations and three tribal TV stations in the NPM network. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services will double funding available for the nation's first-ever diaper distribution program and two tribal organizations will benefit. The program was launched last September. This week, the agency announced an additional $8.2 million, doubling funding for the program, which aims to serve low-income families nationwide. The Sisseton Wapaton Oyate of South Dakota and the South Puget Intertribal Planning Agency in Washington State are participating. According to the agency, one in three families do not have enough diapers to meet the needs of their children. Low-income families are disproportionately affected and, in some cases, spend up to 8% of their income on diapers. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Ameren, the 100% tribally owned insurance partner working with tribal governments and enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. Info at Ameren.com. Support by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium, working to ensure tribal colleges and universities are included in our higher education system. Information on 37 tribal colleges and universities at AIHEC.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. There's just something about getting an actual physical magazine in the mail or off the newsstand with pages filled with colorful pictures and interesting articles. Native-led magazines bring a fresh look at Native topics, including fashion, artwork, and tribal enterprise. And magazines have had to adjust to a changing market as the audience shifts to quick online social media headlines. The pandemic brought a new challenge as advertisers disappeared almost overnight. In this hour, we'll talk with Native editors and publishers of three Native-led magazines about what sets their issues apart from other media content. I hope you'll join our conversation. If you have a magazine subscription, tell us what you enjoy most about opening your mailbox when it's delivered. Do you ever buy magazines while traveling? What about during the holidays? Share your reading preferences at 1-800-996-2848 or just 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Norman, Oklahoma, is America Meredith. She's the publishing editor of First American Art Magazine. She's also a writer, visual artist, and independent curator, and she's an enrolled member of the Cherokee Nation. America, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Joining us from Denver, Colorado, is Kelly Holmes. She's the founder and editor-in-chief of Native Max Magazine. She's Cheyenne River Lakota. Kelly, welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. And speaking with us from Brighton, Colorado, is Montoya Whiteman. 
She's the Managing Director of Editorial and Special Projects at ACES, the American Indian Science and Engineering Society. She is Cheyenne and Arapaho. Montoya, welcome back to NAC as well, and it was great seeing you in D.C. earlier this year. Oh, yes. What, what wonderful memories we have. Thank you for having me, Sean. Absolutely. We could do a whole show on that little gathering, but we're talking about Native magazines today. So let's get into this discussion. And America, I'd like to lead off with you. Now, you just published your 10th anniversary edition of First American Art Magazine. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. This has been our week of celebration. So the Wheelwright Museum, who, was, who has been our number one supporter, um, just hosted a celebration in Santa Fe. And then um, writers Stacy Pratt and um, Shelly Patrick, who are both from Muskogee Creek, they're leading a celebration that we're going to have in Tulsa tomorrow that's part of that Tulsa Art Crawl in the Arts District. So this is our whole entire week of just celebrating. Wonderful, wonderful. Sounds like some great festivities planned ahead here. Well, tell us more about First American Art. Who do you feature? Who are your readers? What makes it special? Sure. So, um, yeah, all, all my degrees, I have three degrees and they're all in painting. So, <laughs> you know, I was really poised to be a visual artist, but something I did throughout my life was always just make publications and magazines. So there might be newsletters for union groups or, you know, I just always compulsively did that as a side thing. But um, it really kind of raised a fever pitch in 2011, 2012, where I had um, kind of reached these things that, you know, as an artist, you're always like, oh, have I made it? And I'd reach these goals and the goals seemed really kind of empty. I could see some flaws about, you know, kind of how much, how much power do art artists have over their career and their narrative. And then um, there is a great deal of art writing in Santa Fe, but often it's, you know, quick and superficial based on, you know, kind of tourists. It's kind of writing maybe cranked out. People, and there's some excellent writing too. I'm not disrespecting these wonderful writers, but it's kind of just a hold together ad. So it really doesn't serve the purpose of communicating and it doesn't serve the needs of either the artists or the collectors. And as an artist, and if you guys, you know, I'm sure you have to do Indian 101 all the time. So you're constantly explaining from a very basic level what you're doing. Meantime, I'll read what's going on in academia, but most people don't have the time. You know, art writing can be very elitist and very, you know, using certain vocabulary jargon to kind of gatekeep. Um, I think that comes from insecurity. Um, so I would say we want to communicate to the people because we're very secure that Native art is excellent. So many exciting things are happening. So that's kind of the rundown. There was just a need. So we are started by Native artists, you know, many of my friends and many of them are still involved with the magazine today. And I am so grateful for all the people that have really sacrificed their time and energy to make this successful. A platform for Native artists. It sounds like that was really the impetus here for First American Art Magazine. And America, I mean, the media has just changed so quickly over the last 20 years or so, and yet there's still room for magazines. People are still picking up hard copy magazines. They're thumbing through the pages. How is it that magazines have endured? What do you, what do you think's going on? Why do they still persist? Right. So we don't really get like news, you know, timely breaking news <clears throat> from magazines. We get that from the internet. Right, so that's for quick, quick, quick. So magazines tend to, uh, niche magazines are doing very well. Um, members of gener um, millennials are actually reading more magazines than um, Gen Xers, my generation were at the <laughs> same age. 
And it's a chance to unplug because we are on screens so much these days that it's kind of a luxury to, um, you know, not be looking at a screen and really relax and maybe take some time. Information I get via social media tends to, you know, I get it and I forget it is basically it. So if I really want to deal with something complex or really learn about something, I need to read it analog. But usually the niche magazines that really thrive, and I'm sure the other writers, um, I mean, the other publishers can speak to this, they tend to be very uh, visually oriented. So travel magazines, food magazines, art magazines, and art, you know, um, fashion magazines, where you really, you know, a little uh, 72 DPI image on your phone doesn't cut it. You want to be immersed <laughs> in these images. And uh, the the photographs, that's a big part, right? You got to have the right photographs. You got to have the good yeah, coloring, visuals, right? Yes. Okay. Now the COVID pandemic, you know, the pandemic, it was just such a a tough time for for so many businesses. And I know a lot of publications, you know, they either folded or they had a huge cutback in advertisers. And what was that like for you folks there at First American Art Magazine? Um, financially, we definitely took a hit. And um, Barbara Harjo is our ad salesperson, and she's just amazing because I'll get, you know, I'll be like, oh no, our, our world's falling apart. And she just plugs along, she just reaches out to people. And, you know, maybe we did sell less ads, but we really saw how important we were because um, we were all isolated. We wanted to know what everyone was doing. So um, we actually increased greatly with our subscriptions and then we tried to see what else we could do. I was grateful to the co-center for the arts, Ralph T. Co-center for the arts out in Santa Fe because they were like, well, do you have an idea of what we can do during this time? And um, so we developed a um, collection spotlight. So Zoom interface where an artist who can be anywhere and then um, the curative collections at the co um, would they would agree on certain objects, you know, items, artworks in the collection, and I could interview them. So we'd all be in different states or different provinces, and we could all have a conversation, and anyone could uh, tune in, and they were able to um, really do a very personal discussion of these artworks that you might see in a museum, and you might not be able to see how they were constructed or what the interior of the back is, and kind of the personal stories from someone in that culture. But um, yeah, my favorite story, and sorry, I'll be quick, because I know there's other people that want to speak, but um, one of um, my friends who's a collector, he didn't receive his issue. So of course we do our own fulfillment. We'll always make it right, you know, just email us, we'll make everything right. But, um, and he said, oh, I really need it because my collector friends and I, after we get um, a copy of your magazine, we'll get on the phone and we'll all have a conversation about what we read. And I was like, wow, they spontaneously created this community sharing the magazine's um, ideas. So I, I think that's really important. And I think um, the art world is very broad. So uh, I appreciate the fact that we are not all on the same plane. And if I had to break down our mission in a nutshell, it's almost getting these different communities within the native art world aware of each other and being mm -hmm. able to communicate to each other. So maybe someone's from the mainstream art world and they're new to native art. Maybe someone is a community person and they've never gone to art school. Maybe someone only does the art markets or they're only in tribal museums or they're only in mainstream museums. We want all these groups to um, be paying attention to and aware to link these different groups together. So that's kind of our constant struggle. America, tell us more about your readers. What's your circulation and what do people say? What's the feedback from your readers with, with all this great content? 
Yeah, this is timely because we just did a reader survey. So in the current issue, everyone who fills out a survey, you're like, okay, do I ever get to read the results? So I always try to share the <laughs> results. So that is in our current issue. Our circulation does fluctuate a little bit because um, Indian Market, you know, Native Art Week in Santa Fe in August is our major issue. So I work with a local concierge service and we do, as our magazines do, we rely a lot on bonus subscriptions. So our bonus distribution, so free distribution at different Native Art events. So we work with a local concierge and we get in hotels, we get in everything we can in Santa Fe. So that has several thousand, you know, more copies. Last year we had, um, for our summer issue, we had a print run of 10,000 copies. So that was really exciting. And readership is usually, you know, you have a Passover rate. So usually about three people um, read our magazine. So, you know, our readership levels about in the 27,000 range. Okay, 27,000. And how often do oh, you Oh, and publish? who these people are. Um, so that was our survey because I genuinely didn't know because it's no longer my cousin supporting me. That's how, that's how we got <laughs> off the ground is cousin power. But um, yeah, so it ended up being about uh, 60, 70% were identifying themselves as collectors. So 96% of our readers own native art and buy native art or trade native art. But you know, it's different when you really are a collector and you're thinking about completing a collection. And about a third, um, 30% or so identify themselves as artists. And I was surprised 20% identify themselves as curators primarily. So that was a really large um, you know, segment. But that I think is, we have, right. um, you know, very educated groups, but we really want to be available for students, too. So we work with teachers to make our PDFs available. You know, if you have a native art class in college, we we definitely want people to be able to use this as a learning tool. We're going to have to take a, a short break here, but we are learning all about native led magazines today and the people that make them possible, publishers and editors. We'll be right back. Tribes in the Southwest and parts of California and Nevada are among those facing serious flooding this year. The powerful force destroys homes and property. It's hard to both prepare for and recover from flooding. We'll talk to Native experts on emergency management about the threats tribes are facing and what can be done about it. That's on the next Native America Calling. Injury prevention. Ensure kids Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Native magazines are our focus today. Do you appreciate holding a hard copy magazine in your hands? Do you have a favorite online magazine you read every week? Tell us what magazines offer that you can't get from any other media. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. We are speaking now with America Meredith with First American Art Magazine. And America, before we go to our next guest, Kelly Holmes, uh, please tell us about how often do you publish your magazine? 
we're quarterly and um yeah people said uh, i love it when people will tell me i read it cover to cover and then people tell me don't come out more often because <laughs> <laughs> usually they finish one by the time the next one's out and i should say our scope is art of indigenous art of the americas so uh we tried to do the entire western hemisphere when the pilot issue came out i covered um contemporary art from greenland so i am always looking for art writers contributors from latin american countries we have some some writers from Mexico, but definitely South America. We always need more. All righty. Well, thank you so much, America, for kicking off our discussion today. And I'm going to pivot now to Kelly Holmes, who, again, is the founder and editor-in-chief of Native Max magazine. Kelly, Native Max has also been around for 10 years. Tell us more about it. Yeah, 10 years. Oh, my gosh. There are times where I pinch myself because I can't believe it. Um yeah, I started the magazine in 2010, early 2010, and then released our first issue in September of 2010. Sorry, 2012. Okay. Apologies, 2012. 2012. Yeah, okay. we uh, launched our very first issue September of 2012. All righty. So you're going on uh, 11 years here this fall. Well, tell us, how has the magazine industry changed over the last decade, Kelly? So I think the younger, like, age group, um, teenage group has always been interested in magazines. I was interested in magazines uh, because I was coming up in a time where social media was still growing and didn't have very many platforms as today. So, you know, we would collage before collaging and Pinterest even. We, a lot of us would get our outfit inspirations from magazines because, you know, fashion magazines like Vogue and Elle, they had a younger magazine out for the younger, um, re for younger readers. So there's Teen Vogue and Elle Girl, Cosmo Girl, so those were geared towards like my age group. So I've always been into magazines um, and I was a 17 subscriber as well. So <clears throat> I think the interest has always been there. Well, 17 Magazine, I remember seeing a lot of those in my house growing up. I have an older sister, so I can relate to that. Well, well Kelly, here you go, 10 years going strong. What do you attribute your success to? Honestly, I have to say my resiliency, I just won't take no for an answer. I started the magazine because of the lack of opportunities in fashion. At the time, I was a model and I was interested in designing and styling. So sort of my the obstacles that I went through in pursuing modeling I thought of creating this magazine, you know, a platform uh, for other natives who are pursuing fashion. And I was told this was a bad idea and that this wasn't something that would work. Really? So, yeah. And, and what, what was I, the, what, why did they say that? I'm curious. Because I guess there wasn't a market for it. There wasn't, a community for it yet like there is now and you know obviously we have always been wearing fashions we natives have been fashionable 
forever. So, you know, it's there. Even going to the powwow growing up, you know, or ceremonies, we would dress up because we would dress up. We're going to see, you know, community members, our family and friends. We're going to connect. So we dress up no matter what. So, um, you know, it's just within us. And it's something that we continue to do. But at the time, uh, starting Native Max, again, there wasn't really a presence there. So I guess that's probably why. But now that, uh, you know, Native fashion is really blossoming and um, getting out there and, you know, is hitting the global stage, now it's like, oh, you were on to something. And I say, you know, well, yeah. <laughs> Well, Kelly, I mean, here people said, hey, this isn't going to work, but you took the risk. And uh, what was it that just made you believe in this vision and this project? So to be honest, I really looked at what everything that I do, I look at what I could have had when I was younger, or I look at the youth today, what could they have now that will help them you know, on their journey to success or help them accomplish their goals or their dreams. I really look to the future. Um, I always say as Native people, we live in the past, present, and future simultaneously together. And so anything that I do, I really, really think about the future. Um, you know, what can our youth have today that will help them tomorrow? Um and also, I look at it, too, as a way of preserving our culture and our stories and, you know, even sharing those into the future. So that's really what helps me and guides me in, I guess, my business endeavors. And Kelly, reflecting now back uh, in September 2012 when it all started, how has the magazine changed and evolved in that time? It definitely has, it, it's both stayed the same, but has evolved. It, it grew. So when I first started the magazine, I made sure it was cool to look at, aesthetically pleasing, modern and contemporary, and, you know, doesn't, it's not boring, I remember thinking. And we really have that today, and it's really the foundation of what everything um, Native Max is, and it's evolved in the way of, I know, um, America touched a little bit on it earlier. Um, before, we only featured Native American and First Nations people. But as time went on, we realized Indigenous people from all over the place are so beautiful, culturally diverse, you know, resilient people, amazing stories all over the place. So... We didn't want to contribute to, you know, putting up borders or categorizing or labeling people. So we really opened up our editorial um, content and looked to feature indigenous people from all over. And so that was something that really evolved for us. Kelly, the native fashion scene is just exploded. I can't get over it. Mean, I was just at a fashion show a few weeks ago up in Idaho in a native community and they're everywhere and there's so many great designers out there. They're artists. Is it a challenge to just keep up with the industry and so many movers and shakers? 
No, no, it is not. I remember before I would meet designers who didn't call themselves designers. And when I would try to feature them or, you know, interview them, they would be hesitant. They would say, I'm not a designer. I make ribbon skirts and I sell them, but I'm not a designer. I'm not what you see in these big magazines. And I would say you are though. Same thing with models, same thing with stylists and artists and, you know, all over the place. It was very hard to get everyone out of their shells, you know, because there were these expectations or, you know, I guess um, what, what made a designer a designer. So now those are gone and it's easy now to, you know, it's, we have an extensive network of, you know, designers and models and stylists and artists that we can, you know, reach out to and feature. And before it was very hard to fill in each issue. And now we cannot keep up. We wish we could, you know, publish a bigger issue, but we don't want to, you know, um, I guess, raise the cost of the magazine. So we also space out stories. So we never run out of content. Mm-hmm. But yes, so it's very beautiful to see. It actually is making me smile right now. Absolutely. And you mentioned cost. Is it expensive to publish Native Max magazine? Yes, in the terms of uh, printing. So I know with the um, in with since the pandemic and inflation, printing costs went up and shipping costs went up, and. It, we were able to keep the magazine at the price point at the price point that we're selling it at now, but that's also thanks to you know really putting in I I guess the quality so making sure our magazines are of high quality and everything is looking good and you know it it we really put a lot of value into each issue and which has allowed us to sell keep selling our magazines but. Yes, for sure. It's, um, but we make it happen. You make it happen. Now, Kelly, you mentioned during the pandemic, printing and shipping costs went up. What other challenges did you encounter during that whole tumultuous time? So what also sets apart Native Max Magazine is, you know, we feature fashion shows. We cover fashion shows. So, um, and it, we create content and a recap recap content of fashion shows and publish it onto social media. So, of course, we are all about events, all about fashion shows. So whenever there was a pandemic, we weren't able to travel to these fashion shows to cover them and to create content for people to watch on social media. So... It was difficult because, you know, again, we just really had to fill in those gaps of like, okay, we're not at fashion shows because obviously no events are happening. So, you know, what else can we do? So for sure, um, that's one of, that was one of the, um, I guess, bumps we've hit. All righty. We're talking with Kelly Holmes, founder and editor-in-chief of Native Max Magazine. 
Anybody who would like to call in today and talk with one of our magazine editors or publishers, give us a call. Phone lines are open. Let's get some calls going here, folks. 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number to call to share your comments, your questions, your insights on the air, 1-800-996-2848. You're listening to Native America Calling. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and bring in our third guest on the program today, Montoya Whiteman, who again is managing editor of, excuse me, managing director of editorial and special projects at ASIS. And Montoya, welcome again. And ASIS publishes a magazine titled Winds of Change. It's a little bit different, though, than the other magazines we're talking about today. Is it safe to say it's more like a trade publication? Um, I would not say it's so much a trade um, publication. It's actually more of a member-based magazine. Uh, okay. Winds of Change was founded in 1986, so we're uh, 37 years old this year. And, and um, what I think is uh, unique about Winds of Change is that it is um, Indigenous-founded, Indigenous-led, and Indigenous-operated, which I think is just a total perfect recipe um, for Indigenous storytelling. And um, that was that. Those are some of the things that, as an organization, we've been looking at because Indigenous people are very natural storytellers. And so, ASIS has um, um, been working right now to um, concentrate on our uh, branding and bringing together various um, departments and and all of the activities that ASIS does in order to you know, highlight what's happening on the program side or what's happening on the event side. And so, um, again, we, we um, have probably a circulation of um, almost 8,500 um, per uh, print issue. We are um, a digital, uh, we, we print the magazine only three issues, but we put out five issues a year, but they are all digitized and they all appear on our Winds of Change webpage, um, but really, um, what 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 um, how the the magazine emerged is that it, it is um, completely focused on STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. And so, what it, what Winds of Change does is it supports our readers at points all along their STEM path, from pre college through post doctoral and into their own professional life. And so what the, what we aim to do is to, um, through mo uh, developing role model profiles of members that are at different points on their path, and we do this through feature articles. Um, and then within each issue, we have our, our kind of standing components of, of the magazine itself, which includes a welcome letter from the president, um, news of the organization is shared through what's called ACES Notebook. Then we have inspiring role model profiles that are part of that. Um, what what ACES people are doing? What are the news? What are um, you know uh, trending, so to speak? Where where are they staying on? You know this this wave of of STEM technology. Then we have news of opportunities that is um, in our career belt builder section. We have a section that's dedicated to pass and education, which would have, which has in there maybe funding opportunities at certain institutions of higher learning, or maybe what what is more focused on um, indigenous education, 
Uh, we have a partner index because we do sell ads for the magazine, and then we also have um, um, near the back of the magazine um, a guest commentary that's on a topic of interest that we call Last Word. All righty. And Montoya, when we use that word STEM, I mean, I'm just thinking there are so many professions and disciplines that fall under that big umbrella. What is the most popular STEM subject for Winds of Change? Well, obviously engineering, um, but I mean, we really touch on so many topics. Um, some, some of our, um, one of our newest programs is called the Next Generation of Indigenous Coders. So computer science is, is an area that we're focusing on. We work with um, Spiro Robotics through some of our uh, projects to go out into communities and work with young um, children to introduce them to, you know, this world of STEM, what coding might be like, what's computer science, because we are all doing and dealing with technology every single day, almost every single moment. And so what, uh, what we're doing, of course, through the magazine is, you know, highlighting, we also have a couple features that appear in every issue of our magazine that might focus on, um, you know, a particular topic that is a, okay. that we think would be interesting to our readers. Folks, we're going to have to take another short break, but we will be back with more information on Native magazines here today on Native America Calling. This Mother's Day, you can give all the mothers in your life truly unique gifts from SweetGrassTradingCo.com, a Ho-Chunk Inc. company, where you can choose from a variety of food, beauty, and wellness items from tribes across Turtle Island. Ho-Chunk Inc. supports this show. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB, who support this program. This is Native America Calling. We're taking a look at Native magazines this hour, and please join the conversation. Do you follow and or subscribe to any Native magazines? Tell us about them at 1-800-996-2848. Once again, that number, 1-800-996-2848. We're speaking with Montoya Whiteman. She's the Managing Director of Editorial and Special Projects at ASIS and Montoya, Winds of Change magazine. Uh, our listeners have got to know, I have got to know, how do you folks decide who goes on that cover? Uh, so we have an editorial advisory committee. We meet twice a year, and that committee is comprised of professionals, founders of ACES, students, and so um, that's really kind of what is the, the guiding force in us being able to determine what the features are going to be in each magazine. But then once we are able to, you know, identify students, profiles, et cetera, et cetera, then it comes down to near the end is when we are looking at um, who's going to appear on, on the cover. And that's usually based on, um, you know, uh, who, we, who we've interviewed, or who is going to be in that particular issue. And so, for example, with our latest issue, which just came out kind of around Earth Day, it's our spring issue. We profiled Jack Osborne, who's Choctaw, from the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, and he works at um, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration. And so, you know, he, he was obviously a profile that we had, and so we decided that we thought since it's Earth 
Earth Month, Earth Day, um, even though it's every day, um, we uh, went with Jack as the cover um, subject of our spring issue. Okay. And I want to pivot back to America, Meredith. America, how do you decide who goes on the cover of uh, First American Art? Okay, all artists, take a tip from Cherry Greaves, because she used to get professional photographs, and she would just send giant, enormous files. So <laughs> she says she's been on more covers than, you know, any. But anyway, um, yeah, it's basically, I don't know, we judge our shows all the time. So it's like, okay, what stands out the most? You know, what's really strong? What's a beautifully shot image? And then, um, unfortunately, there's a constraint of um, the dimensions and size of the cover. So it tends to be more flat art, like, um, but we do try to get three-dimensional objects on the cover, too. Okay. And Kelly Holmes, how about you with Native Max? How do you determine your covers? So we really look into our network, and we look at, you know, who is who is doing a lot right now when it comes to, um, you know, representation in film, fashion, art, culture, um, music, film, all over the place. We really look into these different, um, you know, um, I guess, um, industries and then we also you know, kind of um, get to know them and how, what they're doing for their communities as well. So we want to make sure that they're good role models, community leaders. And yeah, so that's kind of how we sort of um, decide as a team who would be on the covers. Okay. And Montoya, back to you. And ACES is is such a a large organization. It has such a, a long, rich history. And I'm thinking of just so many programs you folks do, events. I mean, where does Winds of Change fit in and align with all of the other initiatives and programming that ACES does throughout the year? Well, I think that um, our goal is, is one, is to per, uh, highlight what opportunities or careers might be available in STEM. Um, I think that uh, as Indigenous people, we understand where we belong, but also acknowledging like current realities such as pandemics and climate change and biodiversity, that those bring a renewed urgency for to have Indigenous leaders at the table doing research and being in STEM field so that we can do what we can to bring out um, indigenous knowledge and indigenous history to the forefront and being a part of what's happening in the global world around us. And the articles, Montoya, are those written in-house by ACES staff or do you work with freelancers? We work with freelancers. We we will also write uh, some of our articles. It, it depends. And we also, um, as amazing as it sounds, uh, Winds of Change uh, has a very small creative team, so to speak. We have one person advertising. We have one person that helps us with production team. And like I said, that editorial advisory committee is is 12 individuals. So I think as small and mighty as we are, or as big as, big as we are in what we're doing, <laughs> we're a pretty small and mighty group of people. And I think that that really speaks to our passion and, um, you know, just all of us believing in 
you know, the ACES mission, which is to increase the representation of Indigenous people in STEM studies and careers, and to, you know, just be able to, you know, um, do whatever your passion is in life and and to be good at it and to have those opportunities available. Mm. Good words, good words, Montoya. America, I'd like to go back to you. And earlier you talked a little bit about uh, ads and ads in the magazine and, of course, ads in relation to content. And I'm, I'm curious to know, I mean, what is that sweet spot? Because obviously nobody wants a magazine that's just full of ads, but you've got to have some ads. So is there like a ratio that you shoot for with regard to how many ads, with regard to how much content that you put in each magazine? Um, we, we want to sell more ads, but, uh, you know, um, <laughs> I think with typically you want 50% content versus 50% ads and we're smaller. We do have affordable, uh, half page ads for, uh, artists and those are clustered together. But, um, something I'm really proud of is our advertisers are also, you know, incredible designers and artists. So, uh, they're beautiful. I think they really provide value. We have had some hard um, discussions. There was a museum that showed a historic kachina, and I don't think it was the worst, but I went to, we have cultural advisors and um, from the Southwest, from Southwest tribes, and they're like, yeah, I don't think this kachina is right. And it also didn't appeal to, um, it, it was for a contemporary show of living artists, so it really, I don't think it would compete, uh, appeal to our audience. So we had to have that hard conversation. Can you create a new ad design? And luckily they did agree. Um, I always get nervous. We, as a joke, but also you can see why it's the truth. We have a rule that we don't have any papyrus font because it's such a stereotype. So I've also had hard conversations with advertisers who had the papyrus font and luckily they did change it. Um, yeah, but um, I honestly, I think our advertisements um, add contribute value and people want to go where the art shows are. So they want to know who are the up and coming artists and where these art shows. So, yeah, anyway. Right, right. And that's really fascinating. You mentioned it. I hadn't thought of that before, but publishing a native art magazine and you mentioned advertisers. But of course, even on your end, just some of the photographs and things like that, you've got to be careful sometimes about yes, what you photograph and what you feature. Yes. Yeah. And um, I came out of uh, teaching early Native American art history at the Institute of American Indian Arts. And you just know, I know in my community, there's certain things you don't show. So no one can know every community. So we, we do have this um, huge network um, of regional advisors and just editorial advisors. So I'm glad I can go to these people. It's like, should we talk about this? And I've unfortunately had, I don't think anyone enjoys this, but we've had to kill articles. They were written by non-Native people and they were discussing Native religion. And it was just kind of clear that they didn't have that personal connection with the tribe they were discussing. And some things you just can't get from books. You have to have a personal connection. So I've had to tell people, I'm really sorry, but we can't publish your article. Okay. And what about, um, you know, because you, you charge a, a price for, for the magazine, a cover price. And uh, is that challenging to, to find just the right price point that the magazine should sell for? Um, absolutely. And I don't have a business background. I mean, every artist is a business person, but not always a good business partner person. So I'm really grateful that I was able to take business classes at the Institute of American Indian Art with a Jennifer Valdez, who's Navajo. And I think she was really she understood that a lot of us were honestly just afraid of banks and afraid of accounting. So I, I'm a big fan of for 
for dummies books. I'm constantly reading for dummies for everything, bookkeeping for dummies, small businesses for dummies. And people always told me to um, get grants, but um, so many people are competing for grants. And the, the, the financial situation here is not the same as it is in Canada. But the good thing is that um, if anyone wants to support us, marketing is tax deductible. It is a business expense. So whether you're an individual or whether you're a huge corporation or whether you're a nonprofit, um, buying an ad is completely tax deductible. Okay. So is First American Art Magazine, are you set up as a nonprofit then? No, no. And one reason for that is um, um, I had to move quickly. I always have to move quickly. Like we make decisions on the fly. So I'm glad I can quickly call, text, email people that I need to consult with. But, um, you know, if you've been part of a nonprofit, everything has to be documented. Anyone can go to the meetings. Um, you have to, there's just so many uh, things that slow you down and we just can't be slowed down like that. Okay. Kelly, I'd like to go back to you now. And of course, we talked earlier about social media and how much content now is consumed online. And, and how do you balance that between native Max, what you print, and then also because you have a huge social media impact as well. How does that all work? So I know at, at in the beginning, it was like, okay, we have this idea of creating separate types of content for all of our channels. How are we going to do that? And we somehow did it. So with the magazine, we feature one side of the stories or um, one side of the cover story or any of the other stories that are in the magazine. And then we have a different side that's on the website. And then we also have more of the behind the scenes, like in action, how our point of view looks working at the magazine on social media so an inside look so it's all very different and again i'm glad we did it that way because we remain relevant and we don't have to try to remain relevant it just happens and yeah sort of a formula we just fell onto which i guess again it helps that we grew up on social media we grew up on um online you know, and um, online blogs and these other resources, digital resources where we, you know, read about news or trends or whatever. So that has definitely helped us. But that's kind of how we do that. The different, uh, publish the different types of content from a different perspective on these different platforms. Kelly, growing up uh, in the era that you did, obviously, I mean, that was really helpful coming of age during the rise of social media and the internet. But what do you say when you hear comments like, meh, magazines are so last century? I laugh because magazines and, you know, periodicals in general, as America mentioned, is, you know, booming um, because, again, people are um, – especially nostalgic and really want something in hand in their hands and also too there's a turn in you know the consumers they want something that's of high quality high value and they're not wanting to just go to the store grab an issue that's you know going to last a week and then toss it out they want something that is going to sit on their coffee table or their desk <laughs> at work or somewhere. And 
people are are want are going to want to pick it up because it is of high quality. It looks like you know this beautiful coffee table book, but it's a magazine. So that's the other trend that I have been seeing. So and even the smaller smaller niche of zines. People are wanting to put their content into zines because they're, you know, bite-sized, um, you know, um, a physical um, magazine in hand that, you know, again, is in person. It's in, in your hands. You can hand it off to somebody or gift it to somebody. So I love how that has shifted as well. That is such a good point. And I know in our house, there's always a, a couple of really colorful magazines on tables, on bookshelves, and things like that. You are so on point. And Montoya, I'm going to go back to you. We're going to have to wrap up the show here shortly. But I know that Winds of Change also has a regular newsletter, and I believe it's published more often. Can you talk a little bit about the the difference between the newsletter, Winds of Change, and, and the magazine we're talking about today? Sure. We have two websites in particular, one, one that has um, – uh, information about ACES itself, and then there's the Winds of Change Winds, uh, new website. But the Winds of Change team also produces what's called our Path to Opportunities newsletters, and that newsletter is actually put out two two issues are put out monthly. One is focused on student issues, and the other is on professionals. And uh, again, the the content itself is 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 around uh, job opportunities. Um, maybe ACES might be hiring. There might be some res- some online resources available. But uh, in particular, we just designed the newsletters to reach a broad readership with, uh, again, with inspiring messages of how STEM ende- endeavors can lead to fulfilling and productive future. And so we have um, – all of this is all digital. It's online. It can be accessed um, – 24/7 through both of our websites. So, you know, we, our goal is to make every our information and our publications and newsletters just accessible to anyone. Um, we are also part of. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with EBSCO, but it's it's a national, it's an electronic library information services service that's used through a lot of institutions of higher learning. Okay. We're we're resource on EBSCO, so. Again, our, our goal is just to get the message out about um, STEM and what's out there and what's available. Wonderful. That is the end of our show. Before we wrap up, I'd like to thank all of our guests today, Kelly Holmes, Montoya Whiteman, and America Meredith. Thank you for sharing your insights on the fast-paced world of Native-led magazines. Join us on Native America Calling again tomorrow for a discussion about the flooding threat to tribes in the West and Southwest. Thank you for listening. This program is supported by AmeriCorps VISTA. You can kickstart your career by joining thousands of AmeriCorps members in the VISTA program serving to alleviate poverty. AmeriCorps members help organizations make change right in their own community. A service opportunity that fits your ambition can be found at AmeriCorps.gov VISTA today. That's A-M-E-R-I-C-O-R-P-S dot G-O-V slash V-I-S-T-A. Support for this program provided by the American Indian Higher Education Consortium the collective spirit and unifying voice of 37 tribal colleges and universities. 
For over 45 years, AHEC has worked to ensure that tribal sovereignty is recognized and respected and that tribal colleges and universities are included in this nation's higher education system. Information on a tribal college or university near you at AIHEC.org. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.